0: para así poder tener derecho a votar o a participar como candidato. Las nominaciones para candidatura tendrán que ser recibidas antes de 30 de junio. Y por favor involucrese, su comunidad lo necesita. KPFA, KPAB in Berkeley, KFCF in Fresno, en online at kpfa.org. Es 3 o'clock. Coming up next, Cover to Cover. Stay tuned. <música> Welcome to Open Book, the Friday edition of Cover to Cover on KPFA. I'm your host today, Eric Klein. Workers of the World Wide Web unite. Sci-fi author Cory Doctorow sat down with me in the KPFA studios in Berkeley a few weeks ago while on book tour for his latest novel, For the Win. I'm joined in studio uh, by Cory Doctorow, whose latest book is For the Win. And previous books include Makers and Little Brother. Cory Doctor also co-owns and co-edits the blog boingboing.net. Cory Doctor, the premise for your book, For the Win, is that children in Asia are playing video games for money, sometimes in sweatshop-like conditions. Is that sci-fi?
1: Not really. Uh this thing gold farming uh is is what it's called it involves doing any repetitive task in a game in order to amass things that are valuable in the real world uh, or or that are valuable in the games that people might in the real world give you money for like uh really good swords or piles of money, gold or credits or really good spaceships. Um and kind of wherever you have people who are expected to do a repetitive task in order to do so, in order to get something they can have fun with, there will always be people who are willing to pay not to have to do the repetitive task. And so gold farmers are people who do the repetitive task and then sell the items outside the context of the game using PayPal or other systems to players who are either too lazy or too busy to do those tasks. Depending on who you ask, there are about 400,000 people who make a living this way.
0: Four, 400?
1: Yeah, 400,000.
0: 400,000 people, and are they mostly young people? Is that? They are
1: mostly young people, that's right. Yeah.
0: And so they make a living playing the game, doing things... That either take a lot of time or skill, and then earning game things, mm-hmm. fake things, but selling them for
1: real money. Yeah, I mean, fake is an interesting thing in this context. Is it faker than a credit default swap or a synthetic CDO? I don't know. I mean, it's it's fakeish. It's abstract. Let's put it that way.
0: And and what about the idea of their work conditions? Is that something that that we know? For a fact?
1: No. You know, there's a lot of different... I spoke to some gold farmers, and I spoke to some academics who study gold farmers, and I spoke to some people who own gold farms and got lots of different accounts. And one of the things that I I realized early on was that the reason all these people were swearing up and down that it worked this way when this way was contradictory in each case is that it's not... Uh, it 's not an organized industry everybody 's doing it differently we 're the blind men and the elephant. We all have hold of a different piece so definitely, I talked to people um, whose conditions could be described as sweatshop, like where there were where there were lockdowns uh, where people were living and working in the same place and were subject to intense discipline, including loss of wages and loss of of um, you know, other amenities that go with an employer who provides your living space, so food and so on, for, for quote, misbehavior. Uh, and that's not unique to gold farming as an industry. It's, I think it's pretty common across, especially South China, but also, uh, village factories, little village factories in China. Um, there's a pervasive story in r- rural China that you can get rich by starting a gold farm, uh, all you need to do is round up, you know, a dozen boys, sit them down in front of computers on the very high-speed networking that's going in across rural China, and then, you know, just sort of alienate them from the product of their leisure, you know. And um, I don't think that it actually works that way. I think, like a lot of entrepreneurial get-rich-quick uh, manias, it, uh, it it holds out a lot more promise than it delivers.
0: And so to be clear again, we're talking about a real thing that's happening now. Mm -hmm. In 2010, in the world, people playing games for money to earn things of value to sell to people who have more money than them. Uh, But we're also talking about your book, For the Win, which is a sci-fi book that takes place something like 5 to 10 years in the future. And uh, in that book, these young people are playing video games for money. So that's not the sci-fi part.
1: No, Uh. the sci-fi part is that they start a trade union. Um, they have a unique advantage in the post-WTO history of labor, which is that everyone in their sector is in the same place. Even if they're in different countries or different cities or behind barbed wire and places where it's illegal to be an independent union organizer, they're all in the same video games. And-
0: and the video games we're talking about, I think we should define. They're they're known nowadays as uh, there's a ridiculous acronym.
1: MMORPG, the massively multiplayer online role playing game. Which,
0: if we unpack for many of our listeners who probably have never played the other kind of video game.
1: So a role-playing game is a game like Dungeons & Dragons. A board game. uh, Well, a tabletop game. And it doesn't, you know, to to make things even more complicated, it doesn't always involve playing roles. There's plenty of people who play Dungeons & Dragons as a thing about, you know, dice and probability and doing stuff as opposed to pretending with, you know, a lot of intensity that they are an orc or an elf or something else. So that's what a role-playing game is. An online role-playing game. Well, that's a role-playing game where you uh, play against the computer. A multiplayer online role-playing game would be one in which there are a few people playing against the computer. Uh, Left for Dead is a really good zombie role-playing game where there's, you know, maybe four or, or or eight players at a time playing with each other. And a massively multiplayer online role-playing game is one in which lots and lots of people inhabit the same virtual world. So the biggest of these is World of Warcraft with right. 11 million players.
0: Known known colli- uh, around town is
1: W O W. You. Wow, or or Warcrack because it's a very compelling game and, environment.
0: And so this is a brand new form of mass media that's incre- incredibly popular, but almost you know, only sort of n- known by people who don't play it in maybe Gwiz type media stories that cover its existence. But it's it's been around now for about as long as the high speed internet has. And it's MMOs, grown, yeah,
1: yeah yeah in one form or another I mean some of the earliest network games were were extremely multiplayer but they're text based uh you know muds and mushes the, these these virtual worlds so um this is the part that's not fi- that's that's fictional right that they that they somehow organize but right. it's all very fraught you know and, and um The people who do gold farming are not well-liked by the people who do the playing, Um, (laughs) although the gold farmers do a lot of playing, too. In fact, what they do is play, and oftentimes what they do in their off hours is play with their own characters. but they're not well-liked. They're thought of as cheaters. And there's an enormous racial component. The cliché is that gold farmers are Chinese. Um, regular Chinese players who aren't gold farmers often find themselves at the wrong end of racial harassment in the games. Uh-huh. Um, and, of course, like a lot of prohibition industries, we spend a lot of time blaming the supply side but not the buy side. You know, So uh, are the gold farmers bigger cheaters than the rich Western players who buy their gold?
0: So we're talking about these massive multiplayer online role-playing games, and they're mostly um, they're mostly war-based, or some of the more popular ones are really about uh, they're either fighting future wars or Tolkien-esque you know fantasy wars. I mean, what do you think about the argument? I think that it's it's almost um, a, a true. It's like a truism. Is it true or not? But that they're irredeemably violent. Video games, and then you get people who, uh, when children live in these worlds, they become little sociopaths. It's kind of a commonly accepted
1: truth. So, Tom Standage, who um, uh, is a text section editor for The Economist and has written some really good books about the history of technology, wrote a really good piece for Wired about the history of moral panics in media and young people. And so, the first, ge- the first medium in which people described young people as being led astray and irredeemably corrupted was the waltz right and the words that they used to describe the walls were not far off from the words you just used to describe the games um it subsequently we heard uh this being used to describe um novels um, we heard it being used famously to describe comic books. Um, right. You know, the, the seduction of the innocents was a kind of bogus piece of sociological research in the 1950s that was an excuse for a kind of mini McCarthyism, a witch hunt against comic book publishers uh, that um, was especially hard on, on one of my beloved, most beloved institutions, Mad Magazine. Um, they. Uh, it was also used on rock and roll, it's been used on rap, it's been used uh, about movies, it's been used about television, it's been used about just about everything. I think that as, so without being too grandiose about this, I write novels, I think of them as art, and I think art is often about violence, and I think that you can make legitimate art about violence. And that the aesthetic experience of art is derived at least in part from having the audience viscerally feel the violence and the rawness and the emotion that the author is trying to conjure up, or that the creator is trying to conjure up. So I kind of reject this argument that games are more immediate than novels, right? Uh, clearly, novels can inspire people to do some strange, wonderful, and terrible things. You know, I I, I introduce into evidence Ayn Rand, you know. Um, uh, but I think to elevate games to a special realm of media that are irredeemably corrupting is to inadvertently belittle all the other media like books you know cuz books have clearly been capable of making a big change in the world and it would be you'd be you would be really kind of reactionary and dumb-sounding. I mean, not to say that there aren't people who are reactionary and dumb-sounding. We should be reactionary and dumb-sounding to go around and talk about how books are destroying young people and they must be kept from the, the wrong kind of book. Now, that said, there are some very good games that are not combat at all. I mean, uh, there's a, there's I a, uh, I don't know about multi, massively multiplayer ones. I'd have to think about it for a minute. But I'm thinking about one of my favorite games of this decade, um, which is Katamari Damacy. Uh, Kaida Takahashi's uh, a Nintendo game, Or PS3 game, I beg your pardon. Uh, PS2? I forget the platform. Someone's going to send me a very angry, pedantic email about this. But it's a a game that is the purest whimsy you can imagine. And he followed it up with a sequel called Noby Noby Boy. And between them, those two games are some of the most interesting, compelling, delightful, whimsical art I've ever seen. Portal, a very good game from Valve, who also made Counter-Strike and Half-Life. It's not only a logic puzzle, it's a beautiful story. Um, and then there's games like Left 4 Dead, which are about mowing down, you know, endless waves of zombies. And I find that c- incredibly compelling and good art, too. So there you go.
0: So, Cory Doctorow, your book, For the Win, it's about uh, young people playing video games for a living in, I guess, the um, the so-called third world. What should we call? The developing world. The developing world. Uh, uh, South China, Singapore, Mumbai. The um, They're playing video games for money. They earn they earn valuable uh, things in-game that they sell to people who have money uh, in Europe and America mostly, I guess. And But it's not just a book about video games. It's also a book about economics and uh, both the fact that these workers uh, try to organize but also that these games are, in fact, giant economies um, in and of themselves. That part's also true, not science fiction.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so some of these games actually have chief economists in them, um, because the the economics of the game are so important to. Uh,
0: so r- real real people whose real jobs in 2010 is to be the chief economist of
1: yeah, World of Warcraft to run to run the Federal Bank of of um, of Eve Online exactly right to set monetary policy for video games, um, partly because one of the reasons people play is to amass the evidence of their achievement, right? Gold, armor, what have you. In fact, one of the problems with these games is they're inherently inflationary. You play them for a long time, the rich get richer, and then there's all this money sloshing around. So they create what are called gold sinks, which are... Um, items that are extremely rare. They don't give you any play advantage, but they 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 are um, in traditional economics speak, they'd be called prestige items. They derive their value from their rarity. Uh, and so, you know, a special purple limited edition suit of armor that you can't get except for a bazillion gold pieces that doesn't give you any advantage in play, but everyone who sees you knows that in order to have acquired that, you had to have spent a lot of gold, which means that you've spent a lot of time in world these positional goods. So, these, so so economists are, are, are tinkering in there, and the thing about games is that the value of the goods is contingent on the fun of the game, right? The value of the goods crashes when the game stops being fun. Um, moreover, the value of goods in game is subject to network effects. So the more people there are who want to play a game, the more valuable the currency is. That's not really true in the real world. We have open exchanges for currency, right? It doesn't matter if people don't want to live in America. The dollar is still worth something. Uh, it has a value that's kind of decoupled from the bank that issues it in a, in a kind of interesting and abstract way. If you'll indulge me, I have a really good story about it. Um, EVE Online is a game they sometimes call spreadsheets in space. It's a game about running mercantilist empires in space where there are very long lags to reach different resource centers, hubs, and customers. So you have to play around it. And as with a lot of games, there's two teams. There's pirates and merchants. And um, in order to accomplish things, you start corporations and you have to manage them. It's basically HR and supply chain management disguised as a space game. And uh, it's incredibly popular. The game runners decided that things were too easy for merchants and too hard for pirates, that being a pirate wasn't fun enough. So they introduced a really badass pirate ship, and it gave the advantage to pirates to the detriment of merchants who were really upset about it. So this this is pure you know, fed tinkering, right? We There are too many savers and not enough speculators. Let's knock down the interest rate and see if we can get people to start taking their money out of the bank and putting it in the market, right? So they decided to to privilege pirates over merchants. Merchants got upset, and two merchants decided that they were going to raise a syndicate to um, build a much better kind of juggernaut merchant spaceship that could be used to defeat the pirates. So they talked all the major corporations into sinking almost all of their money. Major corporations in In the game. game. In the game. Into their syndicate. With the promise that they would then use this money to build a super spaceship that they could all share in the plans for, build on their own, and defeat the Pirates. A Death Star. Yeah, kind of a Death Star. Except there was no spaceship. It was a Ponzi scheme, and their objective was to resign from the game once they had a substantial portion of its monetary supply in their accounts. Because when you resign from the game the money disappears with you. And they created a, a whipsaw deflationary spiral in the game by sucking 80% of the of the liquid capital out of it in one fell swoop, right? So there's a, like a truly economic form of play. And it's funny because if you can read an account of this if you Google EVE online, EVE online Ponzi, you'll find it. And it's the most sort of um, uh, profane, you know, juvenile account you've ever read. Like essentially, if you want to see a truly exhaustive cataloging of all the ways we can have uh, Uh, synonyms for human genitals, read this account. And to what gain?
0: What did they win by?
1: Satisfaction.
0: And and what did did it do to the players who
1: remained in the game? Screwed them.
0: And I guess this is an economics lesson and a game lesson. How?
1: Well, so here's a behavioral economics lesson for you in a nutshell, right? So, um, Neoclassical economics predicts that if we play the ultimatum game, which is a game in which, um, uh, you, uh, the experimenter designates one player as the offer and one player as the acceptor, the offer is given a hundred pennies and he can choose to give as many or as few to the acceptor as he wants. If the acceptor rejects the offer, nobody gets anything. Neoclassical economics predicts that the offer will slide one penny across the table and that the acceptor will accept it because You would have zero pennies if you didn't accept it, and one penny is better than zero pennies. And it turns out that in the real world, people usually offer about half. And if they don't offer about half, the recipients are more than happy to turn it down and punish both people for the satisfaction of... Punishing unfairness. Uh, there's a funny codicil to this, which is that if you studied Econ 101 and been told that the rational thing to do is to offer and accept one penny, you usually do. So it's kind of like there's a little virus of, um, of behaving like homo rationalis as as depicted in a 100 cartoonish economic neoclassical economics gedunket experiments. So this is behavioral economics in a nutshell. We like to punish unfairness even when it doesn't make rational, in, in sarcastic finger quotes, rational economic sense. It's, it's, you know, as beautiful a behavioral economics example as you could hope for.
0: So, Cory Doctorow, your latest book is For the Win. It's about video games. It's a sci-fi book set 10-ish years in the future about video games that people play for their living. It's also about economics. Which, which did you decide to write first? Did you want to write a book about economics or games?
1: Uh, I guess I wanted to write a book about labor. First, because I grew up in Canada, I grew up near the Detroit border uh, in Toronto, just two or three hours away, and I watched the UAW completely fumble NAFTA, right? I watched them... United Auto Workers. United Auto Workers. I watched them see their jobs go to Mexico because America had opened its borders with a country where labor was much cheaper, And, you know, this wasn't the first time in the history of labor this had happened. It was a common enough thing in the early days of the labor movement that manufacturers or bosses would move work from union towns to non-union towns, often with new, or bring in new ethnic populations who are newly arrived on the shores to displace old workers. You know, even, even union breakers. So, so Pinkertons, for example, are often African-American who were excluded from traditional unions. So they were um, kind of sucked into breaking unions. So that's a pretty common experience. And the way that the union movement solved it is they unionized the new workers too. Wherever you were, they would follow the boss and they would unionize. Now, obviously it's a lot harder to go to Mexico if you don't if the Mexican government doesn't want to let you in and if they prohibited union organizing. And and it's not to say that there aren't perfectly great union organizers in Mexico, but what the UAW needed to do was find solidarity with those workers. Instead, what they did was they retreated into xenophobia. And when I started hearing about gold farming, I suddenly realized here is a labor market where all the workers are in one place. And because they are Um, In one place, they can communicate with one another and organize, and because they're young people using networks, chances are they're better at using them than their bosses, who are old people, and they can do things under the noses of their bosses that their bosses can't match.
0: And when you say one place, you mean that despite their physical location on planet Earth, their workplace is cyberspace.
1: This exactly. They can all hang out and talk to each other, and so you can sidle up to the orc next to you and say, hey, comrade, have you ever considered that you and I have common cause with each other against our uh, bourgeois oppressor?
0: And has that, is that happening in real life as far as we know, or is that, is that the science fiction? that this That's the
1: science be? fiction part. That's the speculative part, that maybe after ten years of intense globalization of capital, labor will will globalize too.
0: I was wondering also if... um if the financialization of game economies is that real or sci-fi? I mean, it seems like it should have happened already that somewhere on Wall Street they figured out that the money is changing hands and there could be a derivative sold based on the game economies, but have they gone that far yet?
1: Not to the best of my knowledge, um, and I I don't think it is happening. I think that I would have heard about it if it was. But again, that's that's kind of science fiction as a parable about... um, what's going on in the real world. So I think that, that we do see a lot of securitization of, you know, random stupid debt, uh, random stupid assets that have, you know, no, no underlying value or the securities themselves can just be kind of, uh, become the, their own justification. I mean, I'm, that story at this point is really well known that the subprime, you know, this is all junk and yet we're trading it avidly and pretending it's worth something. Um, you know, I just gave a talk at the Massachusetts Library Association and that the problem with being the after-lunch speaker when the lunch is the um, annual general meeting is that th- this year it was a really dismal annual general meeting that the, the uh, chairman introduced it with um, we've been doing more with less, now it's time to start doing less with less. And it ended with, you know, many of you will not have a job in a year. So it was a pretty depressing audience to talk to. And he talked about how every public service organization in the country was having this. Almost every sector is having this, except finance, of course. So I started thinking, and I was like, why don't we ask librarians if they can securitize uh library fines? We'll, we'll create bonds out of library fine debt, and then we'll create a, a whole, you know, kind of mountain of derivatives, and we'll just shop those around. It seems like a terrible idea. Yeah, it really does, doesn't it? On the other hand, it creates a a whole bunch of incentives for people to take out books from the library, right? So all of a sudden you'd have Wall Street. Just like Wall Street was trying to convince people to take out liar loans, maybe Wall Street would um, recruit an army of hucksters to get you to take books out of the library. That wouldn't be bad.
0: So, Corey Doctorow, your latest book is For the is what we've been talking about. You've also written Makers and Little Brother. And these three books have all been offered for free, on the internet, as well as for sale at normal book price in bookstores. Um, I told a friend of mine that that's what you do, and he said, well, now it doesn't make any money then. You can't possibly make any money, but that's wrong, isn't it?
1: Yeah, here's another interesting behavioral economics, you know, uh, counterintuitive move, right? Uh, so I do this for three reasons. The first one is purely financial. I think I make more money doing it. Uh, I think that as Tim O'Reilly says, my problem isn't piracy, it's obscurity. All the people who failed to buy my books today, most of them did so because they never heard of me, not because someone gave them a free electronic copy. And, you know, most people don't treat ebooks as substitutes for print books. They, they can, you know, only read them for so long on their screen before they go, oh my god, there's probably someone putting a lemon in his nose on YouTube. And then they, 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 they flip away. You know, it's not that screens aren't good to look at for long times. I mean, we look at screens all day long, uh, but that they're really hard to do anything that requires sustained attention. And books are cheap, they're easy to get a hold of, and, you know, so far so good. It also allows my, my readers to kind of recommend the book to each other by handing the book to each other, which is something physically proximate people have always been able to do, but virtual communities have a hard time with. So that's, that's the um, economic justification. There's also an artistic and a moral dimension here. You know, artistically, it's the 21st century. If you're making art that you don't think people are going to copy, you're not making contemporary art. Because copying's never going to get harder, right? Hard drives aren't going to get like bulkier and less capacious and more expensive. There's not going to be fewer people who know how to type, you know, heart locker BitTorrent into Google. Uh, networks aren't going to get more expensive and harder to use. So from here on in, you know, barring nuclear Armageddon, copying just gets easier. So anything people like to copy, they will copy. And I don't mind if you don't want to make contemporary art, right? If you if you want to go off and be like, you know, the blacksmith of the Pioneer Village or a Civil War reenactor or the guy who makes the leather mugs at Ren Fair, that's totally cool. But I'm a science fiction writer, and I'm supposed to be making, at the very least, contemporary, if not futuristic art. So... Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, finally, there's this moral dimension, which is that you copy, I copy, everyone we know copies, and the fact that we're all guilty of violating copyright law puts us all in jeopardy of having um, our liberty taken away because we can all be blackmailed, right? So big corporations have been known to blackmail people for violating copyright law. For example, there's a kid at Swarthmore College who maintained a search engine that was used for lots of things, including finding music uh, on campuses, and they went after him, but they couldn't sue him for suing for uh, for writing a search engine. And that's not illegal. So they went after him for downloading music. And they knew he downloaded music because he was 17 years old. And as a condition of the settlement, they said, we not only want all of your money, but we want you to drop out of the computer science program and change majors because we want to send a lesson that while it might be legal to write a search engine, it's not good for your health. You know, and so that's the risk, right? We, we we're all guilty of something. We we end up living in this world where we can any of us are vulnerable to this kind of blackmail, and I don't want to be a part of that problem. So I'm lucky, I get to do the thing that makes me the most money, that makes me lets me do the best art I know how, and that lets me do it with a clear conscience and be part of the solution instead of part of the problem.
0: And so your books are offered under this thing that's called the Creative Commons.
1: Mm -hmm. It's 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 like copyright. It is copyright. It's a license under copyright. Copyright says you, as the author, have the exclusive right to do a bunch of things with your books, copy it, display it, adapt it, perform it, and so on. And so um, all, people can only do that with your permission. And the Creative Commons license is a standardized way of granting permission for some of those things. So there's there's several different ways of, of writing a Creative Commons license. You go to the web and you click a couple of buttons. It's, it's literally it's three buttons, mm-hmm. and then um, it makes And this is
0: because people have set it up that way. Yeah, It that's exists right. now
1: because of the work of... Of the Creative Commons organization funded by MacArthur, a bunch of Ford, a bunch of other organizations. And, you know, hundreds of millions of works have been licensed, CC, which is awesome. Um, and and what it does is it takes the lawyers out of the licensing. It's always been possible for someone to license something to someone else. And it usually hasn't been necessary because, you know, up until the 70s, um, only works that were registered were copyrighted. So most works that you would encounter kind of in your cultural realm wouldn't be copyrighted anyways. You wouldn't need permission. Now we need contracts. We need licenses for it. And so Creative Commons is standard licenses. Rather than, you know, using the Internet as an excuse for full employment for copyright lawyers, what it does is it makes it really easy for people who want their stuff shared and want their stuff mixed and want their stuff reused to just slap a license on it that is, on the one hand, legally valid and long and legally and also has a short human-readable summary for people who aren't lawyers and finally has a machine-readable version that, version that search engines can index. So you can say, to, if you go to Google Advanced Search, you can say, for example, find me web pages only ones that I'm allowed to copy. And so you can constrain your search results to that. So,
0: for instance, if I wanted to make a radio drama version of For the Win for KPFA...
1: Mm -hmm. If it's non-commercial and if you let other people remix your radio drama, yes, you can. Those are the two terms I set on my works.
0: And what about if you want to uh, make a million dollars when they want to make it into a movie?
1: Well, we sold the film rights to Little Brother, to the guy who made Transformers, and um, he has the exclusive commercial right, but he doesn't have the non-commercial right. Mm. That's cool. I mean, kids have been making backyard movies that were non-commercial for as long as there have been movies, the fact that they can put them on YouTube and other kids can enjoy them, A, doesn't detract from the revenue that will accrue to the studio that makes the big commercial version, and B, um, is good, right? It's an unalloyed good. Kids being creative with stuff is an unalloyed good.
0: But haven't kids been... Uh, asked to take their movies down at this point, their shot-for-shot remakes. Yeah, well,
1: that's the thing, right? Is that suddenly this thing that that looks like an unalloyed good to me, uh, because it doesn't fit within legal framework, is being prohibited, and I think that that's that's wrong. I mean, copyright law is supposed to encourage creativity. Uh, that's what that's what its purpose is set out as in the Constitution, right? In the Progress Clause of the Constitution. I think that when you start making, you start censoring creative works in the name of copyright, you're not promoting creativity anymore.
0: So, Corey Doctoro, uh, we're talking about for the way in your your most recent science fiction book, uh, little Brother is a great book that we should have been talking about, but we uh, don 't have time because it takes place in the Bay Area
1: yeah, I can summarize it in a minute if you 'd like it 's um kids are cutting school one day in uh, in the tenderloin. Um, playing a kind of big scavenger hunt called an alternate reality game when terrorists blow up the Bay Bridge, and the DHS pick them up, and when they're taken in for questioning, instead of uh, tr- acting like cowed sheep, they act like citizens, and they ask to see badges and warrants, and they ask to have their call to their lawyer, and the DHS doesn't like this, and they decide to treat them presumptively as terrorists, because they're doing a thing they can't explain, and they are not being cooperative.
0: The thing being playing a game that yeah, adults don't
1: understand. a crazy game that's kind of hard to, you know, it's a, a breach not calls the war on terror the war on the inexplicable you know why are you taking pictures of that building i just like taking pictures of buildings are you sure you're not playing attack on it no i just like taking pictures of buildings i don't like taking pictures of buildings Eh. you know um so so they're playing this game they get stress questioned one of them isn't released and they decide that they're going to declare war on the department of homeland security and bring the bill of rights back to america and it's a kid's book
0: and it's also available under Creative Commons, so people can get sure it is. for free. As and well as it's, it's out in paperback
1: this week, second week on the
0: bestseller list. There you go. So you're giving it away for free, and it's also uh, on the seller. bestseller list. Oh, well, Cory Doctorow, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Oh, thank you very much. I had a great time.
0: Cory Doctorow blogs online at boingboing.net. He came to the KPFA Studios last month for this interview. To hear the full 40-minute version, you can go to my website, crowsnestradio.com. I'm Eric Klein. Your